of the believer. And so you'll hear joy and rejoicing stated a lot. In fact, it will be part of our passage as we study it tonight. So what would it take? What does it take to be a Christ-like community? I think we get some great answers to that right here in this passage. And what does a Christ-like community look like? I'll tell you two things we're going to look at tonight. One shorter and one longer. It would take, number one, for Christians to know their identity. To know who they are. And we'll look at that And we'll see that in verse 12. And it will take this, it will take Christians to know their imperatives. To know what are the things that are urgently important. That's really at the heart of this very practical message. And if we got a hold of those things, I tell you, it would be transforming. It would be a way for us not to be conformed to this world, this world's attitudes, and the way the world thinks, but it can be transforming, renewing our mind, allowing the mind of Christ to be operative in our lives. When we see right from verse 12, considering the first point, we must know our identity, who we are in Christ. And there are a couple identity markers in this passage. It's the Apostle Paul writing to them, expressing how he feels about them, but it reflects exactly how Christ feels about us. Now, those in the church who who were here on Wednesday night, they saw that when pastor took us through Romans, through the whole book of Romans, and there's this sweet identity marker, we are the beloved the beloved, and he took us right through that. And we're going to just continue with that thought because it jumps out at us. It's not the heart of this passage, but it's a sweet part of it. Therefore, my beloved, as you, that's in the plural, and we'll mention why that's significant later, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We'll get to all of that. But let's just start with that, with my beloved. As we heard about that and and we saw it's such a good reminder. See, when the Christian knows who they are in Christ, I love how Paul said it in the book of Ephesians, accepted in the beloved. When we know who we are in Christ, it positions us to be more Christ-like. In Philippians, we also see in the first verse of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See, if you do not know who you are in Christ, and there's a couple other identity markers in here, uh, children of God and lights, among whom you shine as lights. If you do not know your identity in Christ, then you're going to seek to establish your identity in some other way. The most fundamental question of mankind is, who am I? And to answer that, it'll be, it's going to take these three things. Where did I come from? My past, my origin. Where am I going? My destiny, my future. And why am I here? What is my purpose? They're all connected to this identity. And if a person does not have their identity rooted in Christ in the way that God has made us, they will seek it somewhere else. 
And I want to make this clear that as much as I'm saying this individually, I'm saying this collectively, because for us to be a Christ-like community certainly means that we need a whole bunch of Christ-like individuals. But as a community, we must know who we are. We are accepted in the beloved. We are his beloved. We are children of God. It is not so for the lost person. For God so loved the world, we know that he loves all. But that special relationship we have is his children. When we can stand firm in our identity, we don't have to seek after our identity in anything else. We don't have to become a workaholic because our identity is in our job. We don't have to try to establish our identity in our gender, male or female, or a whole bunch of other letters of the alphabet, and try to establish or find an identity in something else. Our identity is beloved children of God who are lights in the world. We don't need to find our identity in our race or our culture. I lived for many years in a culture I've come to love and share. Really, in a lot of ways, my mind has been shaped because my whole adult life before I came here was there. But I don't, never found my identity there. And my wife, Emmy, being from there, wouldn't say, my primary identity is as a Samoan. Our identity is as children of God. Amen. We don't have to get mixed up in uh, the racial divides into this and that and all that stuff that's out there where people become so entrenched in it and can become very mean and ugly and bitter. And I don't mean just particularly one group. I'm talking about any and many because our identity is in Christ. It's just that one word. But boy, did it jump out at me as I read it. There's a famous line in the movie Moonstruck way back, I think in the late 80s. Olympia Dukakis plays against, I forget his name, John Mahoney. And it's this great scene. He's trying to get into her apartment for an inappropriate relationship. But she was married. Her husband wasn't faithful to her. He was being a scoundrel. And that gentleman walked her back to her apartment and tried to get in there for untoward purposes. And she said, no, I can't. And he said, why? Is somebody home? She said, no, nobody's there. I can't. I'm married. I know who I am. It's a kind of a really strong line in that movie. I don't know if I remember much else. It's one of those lines that's often used when talking about identity, that clip. For us as Christians to know our identity so well that when temptation of whatever kind, that kind or some other kind, rears its ugly head and we can say, I can't because I know who I am, a beloved child of God. Because I know who I am, this brings me to the heart of the message. Because I know who I am and I know my imperatives, I cannot veer away from them. And when I do, there are issues. So now let's start to look at that. When I say imperative, it's a little bit of a play on words, but not really. In one sense, it's because there are three commands, three imperative statements made if you were looking at the Greek and the Greek grammar and all of that. In the English, two of them are very clear imperatives. We see them right away. One is a little hidden. The first in chapter 2, verse 12, 
work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The second one in verse 14, do all things without grumblings, grumbling or disputing. And in verse 18, it's just simply the word rejoice. All three are imperative statements, and I tell you tonight, they are imperative for us if we are going to be a Christ-like community, to get a hold of each one of them. I mentioned already that there's a singular you and a plural you. It's hard for us to see in the English language because we don't distinguish. In other languages, they do. In the Sama and language, they actually have three words for you. There's oi, olua, and oto. There's you singular, you dual, if it's only two people, and all of you, more than two people. And many languages, those who uh, speak Spanish here would be able to tell us about the different forms of you and the singular and the plural, usted, ustedes, and all that kind of thing. And so we see that here. And in the book of Philippians, every use of it, except in one instance, is always plural. The Apostle Paul is dealing there with communal concerns, even more so than individual concerns. Boy, does that go against our modern culture. Because we are in a me, 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 what I need, my needs above anything else, culture, not so with the gospel, not so with the word of God. There's an imperative earlier in the chapter before that mountain peak in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I just want to point that out because that shows very clearly Paul is putting the communal over the individual as this happens. And then he points us to the example of Christ. And so the first of the three imperatives in our passage that we're looking at is this one. Work out your own salvation. You see it there right in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Boy, this is one of those passages. This imperative that we're going to study first is just one of those passages in the scriptures that has been so misinterpreted and therefore misapplied and abused that it's kind of important for us just to deal with the whole work out thing and what does that mean? How can this be? Does this, is Paul contradicting himself? He's made it clear all over um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 for example, for by grace are you saved not of works, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. We have to connect verse 10 to that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, etc., etc. But we know that we are not saved by our works. So what is this working out of your salvation? We'll use the Got Questions video to have a three-minute little explanation of what they say, but we'll certainly be adding a lot more to that as we look at this first imperative, because I will tell you this, if there is not an outworking of your salvation, a church is a body of believers, a body of saved people, and if there is not an outworking of what he's doing in you, you will not look Christ-like. And people will say, why is he so? And fill those blanks with things other than Christ-like. Let's look at this and see what we can glean from it. 
So it's good just to kind of get that in balance and take care of that right away as you read that and you come to it and you see that it is an imperative given to the Christian. It's given immediately after we see that example of Christ in humble service and obedience. And the first thing that follows it is for us to work out our salvation. The Greek word for salvation Soteria, I suppose you pronounce it. I'll probably butcher a few more of those. I have another job, you know, I'm also a butcher, especially when it comes to that. So I'll probably employ that occupation a few more times as we look into this passage. But salvation is an awesome gift. I mean, it's the best gift ever. But I would make it very clear, it is not something we work to get, and it's not something we work to keep. It is entirely God's work. So what is this working it out? See, if you were to unpackage the gift of salvation, you're going to spend a lifetime. In fact, I think we're going to learn more facets of it all throughout eternity. I mean, just the study of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, adoption, redemption, propitiation, and all these words that are a full study in and of themselves that are just a different aspect of our salvation. But when we... uh, To simplify for just a minute here, when we look at what is often called the three tenses of our salvation, we know that our justification happened the moment we repented and put our faith in Christ and we were declared righteous. It's a once and done salvation that is permanent. Praise God for that. And there's a future aspect of our salvation called glorification. There will come a day when every believer will receive a glorified body, will be uh, raptured or the dead in Christ shall rise first and we will be delivered from the very presence of sin and our justification we were delivered from the penalty of sin but this process of sanctification is the ongoing deliverance from the power of sin there's a process in the believer's life called sanctification now if we're going to get more technical and I'll be done with this in just a second technically there's one aspect of sanctification where we are sanctified set apart and made holy our position in Christ praise God for that but there's the ongoing work that God does in our lives to conform us to the image of his son to make us more Christ-like. Amen? And so as we look at this tonight and we look at this, this working out of our salvation, it's a matter of Paul's not speaking about how to be saved, but how saved people are to live out their salvation. He's given us every resource we need to do this. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in us as believers And he wants to work it out. In fact, he wants us to live in such a way to actively pursue obedience in the process of sanctification. He's called us to the great task of aligning our efforts with his great work that he's doing in us and through us. It's worth looking at the passage and seeing that the word work appears a couple different times. They're different words. Work out. Boy, am I about to do some more of my butchery. 
Ketergedamri, to work fully, to complete a work already begun, to accomplish or perform. Think of it more. Now, I've saw a whole bunch of people and heard people and read stuff, and they love to take the workout analogy and build a whole message around going to the gym and working out. I just didn't think I could pull it off. Actually, I don't think it's the most apt analogy for this. The person working out a puzzle or a problem. The person saying, how can I best align my efforts with God's great work so that salvation that is mine can be worked out in my life? And the answer for us tonight is pretty simple. Obey the imperatives. Obey the imperatives. You heard that statement. I thought it was the best statement in that video. To actively pursue obedience in the process of sanctification. That word work out is very different from the word for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those two are energeo, energeo, what we get energy from. If you were to look at it, you're like, wow, that's energy. See, because it is God who does that work. In fact, it is mighty to be active, effectual, and mighty. It is an outworking of something already done inwardly, where he wants to bring it to fruition and conform us to the image of Christ. Again, I say, how do we do it? I say, you study and obey each of the imperatives in scriptures. This idea that I can say a prayer and now I'm saved and then I live a life as if nothing happened and you see no growth and you don't see any pattern of a person growing in Christ and being more conformed to the image of Christ, I don't buy it. And I don't think the Apostle Paul did either. When someone repents toward God and places their faith in Christ Jesus, something has happened. And we ought to see the fruit of it. But boy, why are there so many? Why are Christians so? Why are there so many who are not growing in Christ? It gets right down to this. They're not working out their salvation. Now, I would go and say this. There may be some cases where it just wasn't salvation to begin with. A pithy prayer that did not involve any sense of repentance, of turning toward, turning away from sin and putting your faith in God. I really have my question marks about that. People can debate that some other time. That's not really my point. But we are to obey, to seek to grow in obedience to every imperative, every command in the scriptures. And in doing so, we will become more and more Christ-like because he revealed to us in the passage preceding was obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. How about us? Let me ask you, what do you take seriously in life? Because we're not only told to work out our salvation, what to do, here's the imperative. Let me tell you how to do it. With fear and trembling. This is where I might differ a little bit with that Got Questions video. I I thought it was good and had some good things to say. And in in a very real sense, fear is often a reverential awe for God and this kind of thing. 
But to soften it to that degree concerns me because the truth is if we're going to be Christ-like and if we're going to grow in that way, we need to approach this with fear and trembling. The Apostle Paul is saying to them, as a church, as a group of believers, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, I'm afraid not to. Think about it. What are you serious about? I mean, it means that I want to take every one of these imperatives seriously. This one, the next one, and the next one. And as I look through the scriptures and take them very seriously. My granddaughter loves to say this to me because she always wants to play the tickle game. She's going to stop me from tickling her. And my little Ava will get a blanket around her and put something else so I can't come up and Gucci Gucci. Sorry about that, Tim. I can't come up and do, do that to her. So she thought she had me. And she did all that and she was wrapped up that I could never tickle her like that. I scooped her up and started tickling her feet. And she said, stop it, Papa, stop it, Papa. I'm serious. I'm serious. And as soon as I stopped and put her down, she went for another round. When do you say, I'm serious about this? See, we're to be working out our salvation continually. Every one of us, no one is exempt from this. We're to be aligning our actions with God's word. We are seeking to obey in every way in the process of sanctification. It's his process, but I want to facilitate it. I want to be a part of it and do it rather than the opposite. And when you take something seriously, I say take this so seriously that it causes you to be afraid not to, to tremble at the thought. Lord, give us a healthy fear, a healthy sense of trembling when we neglect to work out our salvation to obey your commands. See, a healthy fear doesn't drive you away from God. It draws you to him. And in that sense, it is a reverential awe, and I agree with it. So I got reflecting on this for us tonight. Let's see if we have time to share some of these. We do. I'm afraid, and I tremble at the thought of this, that we can go to that mountain peak passage last Sunday, and then just go home and walk away from it. That would cause me to fear and to tremble, to not see that. And have it have an effect on my life. Not to realize, not to meditate on, to, to think about all that Christ did when he didn't grasp equality with God, but he emptied himself and humbled himself in service to us. See, we can just read that and read on and keep living in such a way that I have my habits and my routines and what I do and things are balanced, uh, I guess, the way I want them to be. I'm afraid and I tremble at the thought that that can be and far too often is me. How about you? I, I fear and I tremble at the thought that we may fail to honor and exalt the one who humbled himself, the one whom God exalts because of that, and we don't. I would fear and tremble at the thought that the cross could have no claim and no real effect 
on us as a Christian community. That we gather and we have services and we have our routines and we even have our small groups and some of us are a little involved in this ministry and that ministry. But the cross doesn't have such a claim on our lives that every one of us as a church desires to be as Christ-like as possible, as obedient to the imperatives, to the authoritative commands of scriptures, one after another after another, to such a degree that the cross has a claim on our lives and we get to share that with others I fear and tremble at this thought that we can and sometimes do live a life of disobedience, even wholesale disobedience, and keep doing it. When what Christ taught us, what God demands of us, is the opposite to live a life of obedience. I fear that I could fall into a pattern of disobedience to revealed truth in the word of God and not have somebody who cares enough about me to confront me with it. We live in a culture where we coddle everybody. I don't want to be coddled. I want to be confronted. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to say this. I don't want to do that. If I try to say this, you know, he's touchy and she's that. We don't need that. In the community, to be a Christ-like community is to have brothers and sisters in community together who would be striving together for the gospel and would be confronting, not in a mean and ugly way, but lovingly to one another because we've got a shared identity. We're beloved children of God who are light in this world. We have a shared purpose to strive together for the gospel. Does that really describe us? Or very often do we just do the routines of church? I fear doing so little for him when he's done so much for me. And in the context of this passage, we can go to our second imperative. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without Blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. If in the first imperative we heard what we're to do and how to do it, in the second imperative we hear what we are not to do and why we are not to do it. But I have one more very profound clip. It gets very deep and theological. I hope uh, you all can handle it. Let's watch that and see if we could identify a little bit with it. Should I translate? (laughs) Who is that character? Good. You had your hand up first, I think. Yeah, that's you, sorry. You. Who is he? You got it. You said many Sam. I can't believe a young person got that. I thought that was only we, us old folks. Can you identify with him a little bit? I maybe a lot. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. If we're honest, every one of us has a little bit of. Yosemite Sam in us. Every one of us can get ourselves worked up and get in a state and wrestle. That's how I come to believe it. We can do that, but we ought not to. 
In fact, we're commanded not to. We're commanded to do all things. And I wanted to go deep into the Greek of all things and see how we could qualify it. And you know what I found out? It means all things. It means all things. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, without complaining. And you know, we can grumble, murmur, or displeasure and complaining that's not really outwardly expressed. It might look like Yosemite Sam. It might look like... It might sound like... It might be a roll of the eye, a sigh a groan, or a muttering under your breath. It might be an, oh man, fifth graders, are you listening? Miss Schrader will love me if you all get this tonight. Are you listening to me? Oh man, what did you say? I said, amen. (laughs) You have five pages to read tonight for homework. Oh man, I don't know. Hmm? Oh, this only applies to the fifth graders. I get it. It doesn't apply to any of you. Think about the difference that would be made if we were more Christ-like. Because I've been trying to read the Bible and see, you know, when he was there in Gethsemane and he knew he was going to the cross and uh, last week with the disciples. When did he moan, groan, gripe, and complain about it? He had a right to. Have you ever heard someone say that? Well, you have a right to complain. Oh, no, you don't. The world may see it that way. You may have a right to point out that something is wrong and seek to address it. But to be a whiner and a complainer, to be grumbling, that's more inward under your breath, not saying it, or a disputer, and sometimes dialogismos, a dialogue in with yourself, but it also can be a dialogue, but in an argumentative, combative way. Could that ever happen at a church? Could it ever happen at a church meeting? Can it ever happen when someone parks or they shouldn't park or whatever? Boy, we can dialogue this moss over just about anything if we're not careful. But if we're to be Christ-like, we have to do all things. It's very unambiguous without grumbling and complaining. We are never to carry ourselves that way. Church, are you with me tonight? It's like just a simple thing. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. But what if we did it? I think some marriages would be healed. I think we would need less marriage counselors if a husband and wife would just simply say, we're going to relate whatever things we're going through and differences we are going to relate, but not by grumbling and complaining. I really ought to get a couple amens on that. Think about what would happen in your home if your kids got it. What would happen if you intentionally raised them that in our house we don't grumble and complain. We want to shine, not whine. In our house it's not acceptable. But, you know, sibling rivalry. All brothers and sisters do that. What if your house was... Your household, head of household, are you listening tonight? What if a tone was set where mom and dad don't model that to their children and then they raise up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and we say, you know, that's 
seems like it's a normal part of the world. And even some of those things you shouldn't be watching, but you sometimes see on TV or this thing or that thing. It seems like that's the normal way for brothers and sisters to interact. But it's not the norm in our house. Amen. Because I want to obey with fear and trembling. I don't have enough time. Time is almost up. But you know where I would go with this. I know that we have a lot of people in the church who know right where I'm going to go with murmuring, don't you? I'm going to take you to the desert, to the wilderness, to the Israelites who murmured against Moses, who grumbled and complained. And I can give you passage after passage after passage. And you know why I would take you there? But I'm going to skip over all those verses because the Apostle Paul takes us there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 to 11 We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction or admonition. And I can take you through Exodus 15.24, 16.2, 16.8, 15.24, 16.2, Numbers 14.26 to 29. At least listen to, to this one. And the Lord spake to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Ooh, and what comes next? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. The angels attested to the truth of that reading of scriptures. I say this, take it seriously. Because God does. Invite somebody close to you whom you trust to tell you if you're a whiner and a complainer, a mutterer, a grumbler. Find a way to compare the percentage of time that you do that versus blessing and praising. Did we not hear at church this morning how Job in all of those things that were taken while they were yet speaking, while they were yet speaking, bam, 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 And he worshipped. And in all that he did not sin with his lips. There's so much here. Why? Why else besides the fear of the Lord? Read the rest of the passage and dig into it. Why are we not to uh, grumble and dispute? So that we could be blameless and innocent. There's a reason for us. So that we could be without blemish before God and please him. Why else that we would be that way in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation? Not only for us, for them. It's imperative that we get this. That we be a Christ-like community at Faith Baptist Church because we live in a crooked and twisted world. It shouldn't be the Christians who are seen as Hateful, unloving, unchristian, unchristlike. There should be something so different about us. He goes on to say here, a crooked and twisted generation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. 
We're meant to be that contrast. I wish you could come with me sometime to Savai'i, out to the village in Asal, where Emmy is right now, and just go outside because there are so few lights. You can easily, quickly get to a place where it's, everything's dark, and you can look up in the sky and see the stars everywhere, to see them shining. That's who we are. You buy a diamond ring, And they put it against black felt so you can see. If they're going to sell it to you, it's going to be against black felt. Now, if it's a red ruby, they'll probably have a white or a very light background. But you get a diamond ring, you're going to have that black felt. We're in a dark world described as twisted and crooked, bent away from God. The one word is scolios, like uh, the back thing. What do you call that? Scoliosis. Bent and twisted away from God. Twisted, perverse, contrary to everything about God in darkness. And it's getting darker and darker and darker. I wish I can give a good news type of picture of the condition of society today. But the truth is, it's a dark world. I'm going a couple minutes over time. We don't have a pastor's meeting, so maybe by the time we do, they'll forget. But I'm going to take a couple more minutes before we close. Jane Markley and I were at the window Friday at the end of the day. It was almost five. And a parent came in whose job is to work in inner city Trenton. She's a discipline, school discipline, disciplinary officer in some other part of her title. And she started telling us the things she sees on a daily basis. And she spoke of a murder that just happened that was her student's. And the pictures there were her students. And she started telling us story after story after story. Young people who are here at the school, I'll act like I'm in chapel for a minute. Make sure you hug your parents and thank them tonight for sacrificing so that you could come to a school like this. We Christians are to shine, even in a crooked and twisted society. That's why. Why should I just obey a simple thing? Do all things with, without grumbling and disputing. It sounds so simple. It's very profound. It's very important that we get it. For ourselves, before God, for others. I like the little part at the end where the Apostle Paul says, do it for me too. He says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Why should you do things? Why should you be a Christ-like community that is not filled with bickering and complaining and whining and all that stuff? Do it for me. I've poured myself into you. We can say, church members, you have a group of pastors who pour themselves into you. They pour themselves into you through their study and delivery of the word, through interactions, through counseling, through all kinds of ways. It may sound silly, but do it for us. Amen? There's lots of reasons why in the scriptures. When it gets down to it, you don't need a single one. If God says do it, do it. Now, if we, in one of the last one, I'm going to take just a minute, maybe two. If I lie, I'd like to let you know I might be about to lie. 
The problem is some of us, if we really got a hold of this and took this truth tonight and got all of the mumbling and grumbling and negativity and whining and all of that stuff and took it out of our vocabulary, took it out of our conversation, took it out of our attitudes, took it out of our life, there'd be a big vacuum created. Maybe for some of us it'd be a smaller one. Maybe for some it'd be really big. If Yosemite Sam kind of looked like you were in the mirror, you might want to be thinking more about this. When you create the vacuum, what fills it? So that last imperative you find in verse 18, where the Apostle Paul is talking in 17 and 18 about how he's ready to, for his life to be poured out as a drink offering. He's, he knows his life may be taken and they may encounter things that would be hard to bear. But he says, I rejoice you rejoice with me. Now, if you find that imperative a little bit ambiguous in that those two verses and you think I'm stretching it, just flip over the page to Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. See the alternative to the murmuring, grumbling, complaining, and the things we let sometimes crowd our minds and even characterize our attitudes and lives, the alternative is there. We heard it this morning. All that happened to Job, and he didn't sin against God with his lips. He didn't curse. He chose to bless. We too can do that. Make the choice to rejoice. It's not just something you do because you feel happy. Oh, something happened and I'm happy. My team won the Super Bowl. Pastor... Lardy was happy. A certain other pastor, maybe not. I can rejoice now and be happy. Woo-woo! That's not what we're talking about. I won the lottery. I got this. What are you doing playing the lottery? You're a Baptist. (laughs) I got this or I got that. That's not what we're talking about. Oh, I have a good feeling because I got good stuff. The choice to rejoice is to say that I will praise his name I will declare what is good. I will have a joy in the Lord even when I fall into all kinds of trials. That's an imperative. You're not told to just rejoice when you feel good and you feel like rejoicing. We're told to rejoice in the Lord always. What would it take for Faith Baptist Church to be a Christ-like community? You got some good answers right here. Let's pray and close our service. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we had young people from our fifth grade class who could be part of this worship. What joy that brought. Thank you for them, for their music teacher who prepared them. Thank you for some of their family members who came to join us and be part of just see into what our Sunday evening services are all about. Most of all, I thank you that you would give us the great gift of salvation and that we can be part of the process, allowing the work that you do in us to be worked out in our lives to impact others. Help us in that endeavor, and we'll give you all the praise and glory. Amen.